Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. I just want you to keep in mind what you just heard. As we go into Paul's discussion of wisdom, he's going to talk about two kinds of wisdom. And you have to understand the context of both of these letters. What you just saw in 2 Corinthians was Paul talking about boasting in his own weakness as opposed to the super, quote-unquote, super apostles who are very much preoccupied with things like appearance, things like money, power, and that drew a lot of people to them. And Paul said, according to the wisdom of the world, those things are attractive. But as you're going to see here in 1 Corinthians 1... That is not the same as the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God produced a cross. And that changes our value system significantly. So that's what brings us here to this discussion of wisdom. I want to kind of lead up to the verses we're going to focus on by first just remembering, here's the context up on the screen of the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians, which are this kind of competition happening between people who have flocked to different leaders. We're not talking about super apostles yet. Those come later. But it's the same principle happening where some of the Corinthians flock to Apollos, flock to Paul, others have preferred Jesus, and it caused this division. Paul's going to say that's an earthly kind of wisdom, all this division, flocking to people whom you're impressed by. So that's the context there larger. So now let's look more closely, and I want to start in verse 10 as we just lead into this discussion. So I'm going to read starting in verse 10 here with Paul. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, that's Peter, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Then he talks about baptism there, but verse 17 Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. What leads him into talking about wisdom, and therefore what's going to lead us into talking about wisdom this morning, is Paul saying... If you're impressed by particular teachers, by the flashy teaching, by the eloquent words that they use, etc., etc., and that's the focus, this what he calls eloquent wisdom, it's a wisdom of the world, you empty the gospel of its power. You might say, well, why would that empty the gospel of its power? The reason that matters is because we're sharing the gospel with people around us. It's part of what God has left us on earth to do. And if there's a way to share the gospel with someone that basically pulls the stinger off the bee, then we want to know what that way is and not do it. Because I don't want to share the gospel and know from the start it will fail because I have emptied it of its power. So Paul is saying there is a way to share the gospel 
to someone else that just drains it of its power. You will not see success. And the way is, according to Paul, if you share the gospel according to this wisdom of the world. There are two kinds of wisdom in Paul. There's the wisdom of the world and there is the wisdom of God. And he's going to talk about both of them here. But if you try to conform your message to the wisdom of the world, then it will not save anyone. God is not pleased to use it to bring someone to knowledge of the truth. So obviously it's a very important passage for us since this is what we're called to do. I do want to point out as we get started, if you skip down just shortly to chapter 2, verse 6. Paul is going to talk about the wisdom of the world, but it's important to remember verse 6. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age. That's where I get this idea that there are two wisdoms. You see that? Paul is going to talk about in chapter 1, the eloquence of wisdom ruins the gospel. But he doesn't want you to think, well, then let's all be foolish. (laughs) Not ultimately. He's going to use wisdom in chapter 1 to refer to the wisdom of the world. But there is a wisdom that comes from God. So there really are these two wisdoms, and you have to keep that in mind when you read this, or it won't make any sense. So let's get into this. Let's see, okay, we don't want to share the gospel in this way. How do we not do it? And to give you kind of a summary as we get into it, simplest way I can think of, since I'm simple, Plato, you know Plato, okay, you take Plato, we've got a two-year-old, so you got some Plato, and you know they make those little plastic molds, and you take the clump of Plato, and you put it in the mold, and you close it, and then you rip off the edges, and you open it, and it's a bird, you know, so that's nice. If you think of the Plato like the gospel, this is what Paul is saying, think of the Plato like the content of the gospel. It's this message about Jesus Christ crucified for our sins to bring us to God. Okay, there it is. What Paul is saying is there's such a plastic mold as the wisdom of the world. About to talk about that. And if you take the content of the gospel, ball of Plato, and you try to put it into that plastic mold and close it, You're not changing necessarily the exact essence of the Plato, right? You're just kind of squeezing it into a certain shape. But what happens with the wisdom of the world is the wisdom of the world, that mold is much too small. So when you stick that content of the gospel in there and you close it into a particular shape, the problem is mainly how much of the Plato does not fit in the mold. And what do you have to do with it? You have to rip it off and get rid of it. And it's not a part of the message anymore. And what Paul is going to say is, that's what happens when you take the gospel, you stick it in what resonates with the wisdom of the world, because the one thing the world mainly does not want to hear about the gospel, they do want to hear about God's love. We all do. There are many things about the gospel, if you shape it right, we'll hear it. But the natural man, the thing that the natural man most won't accept, that part of the Plato that just won't fit and has to go is sin. That's what it is. It's human inability. It's the cross as a statement, this is how bad you are. And the world does not want to hear that part. It's the cross as saying, all your attempts to reconcile with God are failures. That's why a cross is necessary. 
the things that fit in that mold, like God's love, like an inner peace, things which are true, those things remain true, but if you take that sin, that statement about our sin, our inability, the judgment of God, and you take it away, it will remove the offense of the gospel, and it will empty the gospel of its power. Because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And if sin is gone and judgment is gone, and we're generally good people who just need a little help through the door, then we don't need salvation. And salvation goes away. Let me show you that from the text, though. I just wanted to give you that as a kind of intro there. All right. Chapter 1, moving down to... Verse 18a, I just want to read this as a kind of summary and then move down from it. I only have two slides. I'm merciful, see? Only two slides. I don't have a lot of time, so. 18a, here's Paul's summary. For the word of the cross, that's the gospel, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. The gospel is folly, that means foolishness. And the first point we draw from this, when Paul's thinking of wisdom of God, wisdom of man, is that the wisdom of God is and must be foolish to someone who is an unbeliever. If you present the gospel to someone in such a way that someone who does not have the Holy Spirit, who has not been born a second time, they hear the gospel message and there is nothing offensive in it whatsoever, and there is nothing foolish in it, and it resonates 100% with what this person is already interested in and already thinks about, then that gospel has no power. Paul is saying the gospel, the word of the cross, it is. This is what it is. It's folly to those who are perishing. Now, to those who are perishing means, and we'll come back to this on the next slide, okay? I'm not saying the gospel is in itself a silly idea, a silly message, foolish, stupid, anything like that. That's not what Paul's saying. That's not what I'm saying. But this is why you have to keep in mind there's two wisdoms at play here. And what Paul is saying is just like water is not necessarily, I should, yeah, water is not necessarily a liquid. It can be a solid. It can freeze. It can be a gas if you heat it up. But at room temperature, water has to be a liquid. Can't be anything else. And what Paul is saying is the gospel is not inherently foolish, but at worldly wisdom temperature, it has to be foolish. In this environment of a world, to those who are perishing, the word of the cross has to be foolish to them. So there's the summary. If you skip down to verse 22, Paul explains it. What do you mean, Paul? Why is, the, why is the gospel considered foolish by the world? And he explains it like this. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Paul divides this discussion of the world when he says to Jews and to Greeks. That's the same as verse 18, to those who are perishing. Jews and Greeks in his context represent all the unbelieving world around him. 
And really, we could say the Jews, in our sense, are religious but unbelieving religious wisdom. There's a lot of that. And then the Greeks, we could represent as just the rest of the culture, or what we would call a kind of a secular wisdom here. Can't see back there. So let's break that down into its two parts. Why is the gospel considered and has to be considered foolish to the religious wisdom of the world? An unbeliever who is nonetheless religious, tends church and so forth. And Paul's explanation of that is, he starts in verse 22 by saying, well, here's what a Jew or a religious, unregenerate religious person thinks of as wise. Signs. Jews demand signs. And really, if you remember in Jesus' life, they did ask Jesus for signs, and these were signs to authenticate Jesus. But really behind that request for signs from the Jewish people was not this heart sincere toward God that wanted to believe, just confirm it. It was instead this heart that did not want to believe and therefore demanded something they did not think Jesus could do. Or, in other cases, it got worse than that. We're about to see that in a second. Really, religious, unbelieving wisdom, the reason it hates the gospel is because it has this equation in its mind. And I grew up in this category, so I'm not hating on anybody. This is, this is my history. It has this category in mind. If I do good, however I define good, then God will bless me in this life and in the life to come. But that's the equation right there. If I do good, if I go to church, and if I treat other people well, and if you're in a more strict religious environment, if I wear certain clothes, whatever the good is, it's a religious wisdom that says I do the good and the consequence is I put in the token and I turn the knob and the gumball of God's blessing comes out. It's just like clockwork. That is the, not only Jewish, but in that time, but that is the religious, unbelieving wisdom. That's the way it looks at the whole world. That's what resonates. And that's true today as well. We'll see that in a second. I want to give you an example of that in Jesus' own lifetime. So if you would flip in your Bible over to John chapter 6. Here's Jesus. They are going to ask of him a sign, and you're going to see this exact dynamic, this way of thinking, this wisdom of the world. I do for you, God, you do for me. You're going to see it played out right here, starting in verse 26 of John 6. And man, if you don't see human nature right here, it's almost laughable if it weren't sad. It's how we naturally are. Jesus had multiplied bread, and then everybody ate. Remember that? Split the loaves. Then he left, and they chased him down to find him. And here's what Jesus says. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me, not because you saw signs. That's what they want, signs. Signs of miracles, the miraculous, but not as a confirmation, he's going to say here but because they want that blessing of a gumball. They want that to come out to them. You're not seeking me because you saw signs and you demanded those signs in order to authenticate who I am, but here's why you're seeking me. Because you ate your fill of the loaves. 
You got a gumball out of this. You got something you wanted. You wanted loaves and you got it. And Jesus says, don't work for the food that perishes. Bread goes bad. But for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. So notice what Jesus is doing. He's saying your viewpoint as unregenerate but religious people is that in seeking me, I'm going to give you something you want, what you consider a blessing. That's how you're viewing this scenario right now. You want loaves. That's why you chase me. And Jesus is trying to turn them from that to show them that is, as he will say in another place, this adulterous generation seeks for signs. That is adultery because God wants you to seek him. Me, the son of God, focus here on me. God has set his seal on me, seek me. And they came to him seeking him for something else. For the gumball, for the loaves, for the blessing in this world. Something else they wanted. And they're saying, look, get with the program. We put the quarter in. We're seeking. We're doing the right things. We're good Jewish people. And now you give us the loaves that we want. And Jesus is saying, that's adultery. You are using me, the creator of the universe, to get something I created. That's adultery. So Jesus is trying to turn them. But just look at the persistence of this religious viewpoint. Verse 28. Then they said to him, not, you're right, we love you, focus on you, but what must we do to be doing the works of God? We want to make loaves. (laughs) Wouldn't that be great to make some bread? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Not that you do signs that satisfy your desires, but that you believe in me. Again, focus here. So here they said to him, well, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? They're demanding signs, but it's not to authenticate Jesus. And how do we know that? Because just look, of all the signs they could request, what's the sign they just throw out there in this verse? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it's written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. They want bread. That's all they want is bread. So they say, oh, you know, we'll believe you if you do a sign. He just did a sign. He just multiplied bread. But you notice that's not what this is about. This isn't about Jesus. This is, we put in the quarter. Now give us the blessing. We're being religious and good. Now give us bread to satisfy this desire. And Jesus, again, he says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. Focus on God. He gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. It's me. Focus on me. So they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And they are still thinking, okay, use the poetic language. We don't care. Just give us bread. And then he says, I am the bread of life. That is the religious viewpoint. That's what Paul's saying here. Jews demand signs. But the Jewish demand for signs was not ultimately, we really want to know so that we can trust in you and be reconciled to God. The Jewish demand for signs was, bless us. It was a desire for the kingdom of God to come, which we know will come, 
But it was a desire for the kingdom, for the kingdom's sake, not for the sake of the king, not for the sake of Jesus. It was a desire that a, a king, a Messiah, would come and would kick out the Roman enemies and establish the Jewish people as dominant in the land of Palestine and give them bread and no more famine and no more hunger and no more pain. And everything is great just like in the days of David. And if Jesus does it, sweet, that's fine. And if some other guy does it, that's fine too because the focus is not God. The focus is not Jesus, the Son of God. The focus is the bread. And whoever gives the bread will keep putting tokens in to keep getting the bread. That's the religious viewpoint here. Now the question is, okay, most everyone in this world holds a variety of that viewpoint. Why then is Paul saying if you take the gospel and you present it to someone, not regenerate, no new heart, with that viewpoint, why will they look at it and say, that's foolish? And the reason is, Paul says, Christ crucified. If you flip back now to 1 Corinthians He says that Jews demand signs, but verse 23, they want signs, they want bread, they want blessing. They want blessing, but what we preach is curse. We preach Christ crucified. And in the Jewish world, based on Deuteronomy chapter 21, to be hung on a tree is to be cursed. It is the opposite of everything a Jewish person would seek. You desire blessing, you desire the kingdom, and you don't want to be cursed by God. In fact, Deuteronomy 21 says if they were to execute someone by hanging them on a tree, they were not allowed to leave that person on the tree overnight so that they would not defile the land. That's how bad a curse it was to be hung on a tree. And so when Paul comes to a Jewish religious wisdom and says Christ crucified then they say no that is not what we want that doesn't make any sense in our system it makes no sense in our wisdom you put the quarter in you get the blessing out if I put the quarter in and out comes a curse then I'm not going to put the quarter in anymore Christ crucified is in fact a curse and therefore it is foolishness to that part of the world that is interested more than anything else in a blessing from God, in bread from God, in a lack of suffering and a lack of pain, that God would allow things to go well and that he wouldn't allow death into our lives and that as long as we are religious and we are doing well and we are going to church, then God will not allow suffering into our lives. That's the contract. And Paul says, how about this? You serve God, you seek him, he forgives your sins and he allows suffering into your lives. And if you don't have a new heart, that is not interesting. That is not interesting. That's what Paul is saying. So examples of this today, we can think of extreme examples of this kind of worldly wisdom that rejects the gospel. Uh, and those more extreme examples would be, of course, the prosperity gospel. And we're all, most of us are familiar with the fact that that is an error, but most of our country is not. 
A prosperity gospel is teaching, similar to this religious viewpoint, if you sow your seed, in other words, give money to a particular ministry, if you do certain things, then you will reap ten, a hundredfold, whatever the promise is. You will have money. And if you exercise a certain kind of faith, you will absolutely be healed. God doesn't want you to be sick. And you will prosper. And you will have a large house and a nice car if you have the faith and if you give to our ministry. That's entirely false. That is the wisdom of the religious world that Paul is saying is itself useless. It is nothing. And if you try to make your gospel conform to that, you will ruin it. I read a tweet. This was by Justin Peters, who came and spoke here a while ago, if you remember. And all he said was, Kenneth Copeland, he's a prosperity teacher, $55 million jet. Creflo Dollar, another one, $70 million jet. Jesse Duplantis, $54 million jet. The Apostle Paul, hungry, thirsty, poorly clothed, roughly treated, homeless, beheaded. The Apostle Peter, silver and gold have I none, crucified upside down. If your view of life is, I do right and God blesses me, the gospel will be foolishness. And the reason the gospel will be foolishness is this. That part of the Plato that you take out to conform this message to the world, that says it doesn't matter how good you do, you still deserve curse. No matter how much you work for salvation, you will never get it. There is no ability within yourself. There is nothing you can do. You don't have a quarter to put into the machine. You have nothing. Already you are cursed and deserve none of God's blessings. But if your worldview is, I do good, I get blessing, that is not what you want to hear. But that is at the very base of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a Christ cursed, crucified, but Galatians 3 says he was cursed because we're cursed to take our curse on himself on the tree so we'd stop being cursed. And all our good doing and all our religious works, we live under a curse. And that's why Christ crucified. But that is a foolish message to someone who has this view of the world you give and you get. So that's religious wisdom in this world. And Paul is saying the gospel has to be foolish to someone with that view. It has to be. <clears throat> but there is more. <clears throat> that would represent the Jew, the religious wisdom. But there's also to the Greeks. Foolishness to the Greeks, this could represent what we would call secular wisdom. And you might think that's a little bit of a jump because there's no Greeks. I mean, sorry if you're Greek. There maybe is a Greek, but... Not, it's not a Greek culture that we're living in. And that is true, but I would remind you that in the Western world, the Renaissance, which really stretched from about 1300s to the 1600s, but really flowered after the Reformation, the Renaissance, that's called a rebirth. It was across Europe. And do you know what it was a rebirth of? Greek culture and ideas. That has had a significant impact on where we are today. So we're not exactly Greek culture, the secular world in the West, but in a lot of ways we've been influenced by Greek culture more than any other. So the Greek can represent here secular wisdom of someone who doesn't truly know Christ. <clears throat> and just think, moving aside from this more religious viewpoint, in the secular world, Okay, if you're thinking in 
maybe this isn't the right way to think of it, but this is where I go. I go to Hollywood. I think about that. I feel like Hollywood and movies, and probably popular books as well, pretty well represent where we are as a country, more on the coasts, but it's at least where we're heading as a country. And so if you think about secular wisdom, then just go through Disney movies in your mind. We're not hating on them, okay? We watch Disney movies, but just if you go through Disney movies in your mind and think about what are the primary messages, there are some good messages for sure, what are the primary messages, the wisdom of the world, the secular world, the Greeks, being conveyed through a secular media, a Disney movie? And think about it. Here's the main one, right? Although it's maybe lessening, but it was definitely when I was growing up. Believe in yourself. Isn't that? Remember Arthur theme song to that TV show? That's, even, that's in the theme song, you know? Believe in yourself, that's the place to start. That's definitely the consistent message. If you had to pick one message through Disney movies, sorry to pick on Disney, I like Disney, okay? But if you had to pick one message through Disney movies that continues through just about all of them, it would be this uh, self-esteem. It would be this believing in yourself, being true to yourself, not allowing the expectations of others, whether that be your parents, or whether that be your peers, or whether that be the culture, whether whatever, not allowing that to change you. You need to be true to who you are. And uh, that's kind of the message there. That is a secular wisdom, and why? This is why. If you ever wondered, why is that such a prominent message? Well, with the Renaissance and with this restoration to Greek culture, the primary dominant theme that came into the Western world that differentiates after the 1600s and before the 1600s is what we call humanism. And humanism is, I've got this Google definition, okay? An outlook or system of thought attaching prime importance to human rather than divine or supernatural matters. Humanist beliefs stress the potential value and goodness of human beings, emphasize common human needs, and seek solely rational ways of solving human problems. That influence is why the secular world, the focus is, if you don't have God as your treasure, as your focus, as everything, then the greatest thing you have is yourself. It is humanity and is primarily yourself. And that's why believing in yourself and being true to yourself is the focus. That's why then the exertion of yourself over others takes front row over everything else. Why do you think if you see someone who has beauty, has a nice suit on, has apparently power, maybe they're tall, whatever it is, they meet the cultural standards of power, of influence, they have lots of money and they drive a nice convertible and you see that person and it has an effect on how you view that person, at least immediately up front, and there's a certain attraction to that. And a lot of the reason is because that person... You're wanting to be that person. You want to be that person because you believe they have power through their appearance, through the money they have. It gives them power, and power lets them be themselves. Nobody can tell them to be something else. They can be what they want to be. They can exert themselves. And the culmination of that viewpoint was World War II with Hitler. But we don't view it that way. But that's the idea. That is the greatest thing is yourself, and therefore whatever gives you sway over others is the most important thing. That's the secular world. So you see this power, they seek wisdom, 
But the wisdom he's talking about there is the wisdom of the great ancient rhetoricians who would travel from place to place like the super apostles. They would charge large sums of money and they had charisma and probably nice teeth and they would speak in a very eloquent language and they would sway lots of people even if what they said was false. That was the kind of wisdom the Greeks seek. If you remember when Paul was in Athens, it said that the people always, every day, did just about nothing except they just listened to the next speaker who was coming through because they really enjoyed hearing people use rhetoric, using speech, because they loved the power of it. So why would the gospel not resonate with a secular viewpoint? Because Christ crucified is weakness. To the religious, it's a curse, but to the secular, it is weakness. There's nothing strong about it. Friedrich Nietzsche, he was a very popular, prominent German philosopher that his ideas, people would argue this, but I do think they led into World War II, but his ideas, he hated Christianity because he believed that Christianity stuck into the West an exaltation of the weak. And he said, now that we have, you know, Darwinian evolution coming around that time, forget the weak. Let the weak die that the strong may live and prosper. We'll all grow as a civilization. It's Christianity that makes us have pity on the weak. He's right. He's, he's right. It is Christianity that makes us have pity on the weak. Because at the center of Christianity is something exactly opposite of at the center of the secular viewpoint. At the center of Christianity is weakness is the dominance of others over you, is your own inability to control everything, everything else. Is Jesus saying if someone slaps you, then you turn the other cheek and you get slapped a second time. It is Christ crucified, giving no response in defense when he's on an unjust trial, going to the cross and suffering there in weakness, the dominance of others over him. In that context, the gospel must be foolishness or it loses its power. So in conclusion here, the gospel must be foolish. You will see this as Dan teaches this class in 1 and 2 Corinthians, that Paul emphasizes, I am weak, and that's good, because God shows his strength in my weakness. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you very much for the opportunity to look at these few verses and to think for a short time not only about these two letters of Paul as a whole, but more specifically, this amazing gospel that says we have nothing in ourselves to offer, but that Christ crucified has given us everything. I thank you for the cursedness of the cross, of Christ taking our curse upon him, and I thank you for the weakness of the cross. And I thank you that we have the opportunity though weak, to live in that example of Jesus, to revel in our own weaknesses and inabilities, to delight in the fact that you do have everything under control and we don't have to. Lord, I thank you for opening our eyes to see the wisdom of the gospel, even though it's so contrary to our own, and I pray that you would open the eyes of anyone here who does not have that wisdom from above. It's in Jesus' name I pray.